This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we begin with our health lead, the coronavirus pandemic. This afternoon, the White House press secretary shockingly claimed that the world is looking at the United States as a, quote, leader in combating coronavirus. Yet the nation is only leading in all the wrong ways. The number of coronavirus cases, now almost 3 million, and deaths, now more than 130,000. Only four states are seeing the number of coronavirus cases decrease. And California and Florida, well, they're leading the way in the number of new infections. And we are already in the midst of a surge. But health experts fear another across the nation linked to crowded holiday gatherings. Plus, more than 200 scientists around the world now outlining evidence that coronavirus can float in air droplets, lingering indoors even after an infectious person has left. And as CNN's Jason Carroll reports, at least 10 states are experiencing record levels of coronavirus hospitalizations. What pandemic? We get complacent. We get cocky. We get a little arrogant. That is a real threat. Across the country, July 4th gatherings with no social distancing or mask wearing, like this party in Diamond Lake, Michigan, at a water park in Wisconsin, this speedway outside Denver, and on Fire Island, New York, where crowds gathered on the beach during the day and at a pool party at night. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, Actions have consequences. In all coronavirus cases surging in 32 states, California reaching new dangerous levels Sunday with nearly 12,000 new cases reported. Texas saw its second highest day of new cases over the weekend. The mayor of Austin says his city is two weeks away from running out of hospital beds. We opened up uh, in ways that were not sustainable uh, and now we're we're having to, to, to turn that curve. In Florida, where they shut many beaches to discourage holiday crowds, a record for the most coronavirus cases in the United States in a single day on Saturday, and more troubling numbers. In Miami-Dade County, the state's hardest hit, the positivity rate is at 26 percent. The goal is 10 or lower. Hospitalizations up 88 percent. Ventilator use up 119 percent. The mayor there today signing an emergency order rolling back reopening, closing restaurants for indoor dining and other businesses starting Wednesday. We're starting to roll the carpet back up. Uh, You know, it's pretty clear we have this real problem. Health experts warned for months that more attention needs to be paid to how the virus transmits in the air. Now, 239 scientists have signed a letter addressed to the World Health Organization asking them to be more upfront in explaining that. Currently, the organization does not call COVID-19 an airborne virus. The bottom line is very, very clear. Uh, Yeah, there is aerosolized transmission and people absolutely need to be wearing masks and they need to be wearing masks, particularly when they're indoors. And now some potentially encouraging news on the treatment front. The biotechnology company Regeneron announced today it is in phase three of clinical trials on a drug to prevent and treat coronavirus. And Pamela, this late development, hospitals in at least two Florida counties now say they are at capacity. We're talking about Pinellas County. We're also talking about uh, Clay County, the Kindred Hospital there in North Florida, basically now saying they have zero out of 40 beds available. 
Pamela. Jason Carroll, thank you for bringing us the latest. And now let's talk to one of these doctors who's on the front lines, Dr. Craig Spencer, Director of Global Health and Emergency Medicine at New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center in New York City. In fact, you're just recovering from an overnight shift in the ER. Dr. Spencer, you have been treating coronavirus patients since the start of this pandemic. You just finished that shift. The White House says, as you heard today, that the U.S. is the leader of the world when it comes to handling coronavirus. Is that wishful thinking? Absolutely. Let me be clear and start by saying that what we're seeing now is an abject failure in our pandemic response here in the United States. I want to also be clear that this is not a political statement. This is a public health proclamation. What we need to do right now to address this is to focus on the future. We need to do the same thing that I've been talking about for months and many other public health professionals have been saying since really the start of this outbreak. We need way more testing. We don't need to undermine the value of testing. We need to build a contact tracing core. We need to make sure our frontline providers have personal protective equipment. Many are still going to work without the stuff that they absolutely need all around this country. And the most important thing we need to do right now is we need to put public health, public health professionals and public health agencies at the forefront. We can't be hearing public health information from the president on his Twitter feed if we hope to get through this pandemic. And I want to get your reaction to these pictures, Dr. Spencer, people hitting beaches across New York. How concerned are you that New Yorkers might believe they are in the clear, uh, which could once again lead to packed emergency rooms and hospitals incredibly overextended? You know, I am really worried. What we went through here in New York City and what we saw on a daily basis in the emergency department was horrible. I understand that people want to get out and they want to get to some sense of normalcy. I'm quite frankly less worried about people being on beaches as long as they're far from each other. We know that being outdoors helps reduce the transmission. But being close is certainly no good. I'm more concerned, quite frankly, about people in other places where the number of cases are surging. Right now in New York City, the test positivity is between 1% and 2%, meaning that there's not much virus floating around. There's not much virus here in New York City. In contrast to places like Arizona, Florida, Texas, where the percent positivity for those tests is 10, 15, 25% in places like Arizona. That's where I'm more concerned about people being outside, being inside, really just allowing this virus to spread. That is what's more concerning to me. And you said that essentially there has been abject failure from what you're seeing in terms of leadership on coronavirus. And yet you have the White House today defending the president, saying that 99% of coronavirus cases are totally harmless, saying that it just has to do uh, with how you look at the numbers, looking at the mortality rate. What are the facts here? (laughs) Well, that's not true. As someone who took care of hundreds of COVID patients and saw many of them die and held their hands as they did and saw their families sobbing on on FaceTime as, you know, as they, they saw their family members, you know, fall prey to this illness. Look, even if you look at the really, quite honestly, bad statistics we have in the U.S., we know that we've under-tested for a long time. If you look at, you know, the 11 million cases, over 11 million cases we have here and 130,000 deaths, that's 4.5% mortality. We know that it's not necessarily the true mortality rate, but 99% doesn't even jive with the bad numbers that the president is so proud about. 99% doesn't make any sense. But no even if you don't physician. die from coronavirus, does that make it not harmless? From what you've seen? Absolutely not. I see so many people who have chronic or you know longer term complications. It's not just a flu where you get over it and you feel better a couple days later with some chicken soup, some some Tylenol. I'm seeing people who are having complications one, two months after this. I've seen people in the emergency room in the past 24 hours that have blood clots that have been associated with this. We know mm-hmm. people that have had strokes and will have chronic disability from this. 
look, it's very clear that death is not the only thing that we should be thinking about with this. Many people are going to have long-term symptoms. And as someone who survived Ebola, a viral disease as well, that many people have had and continue to have these long-term consequences, there's a lot more that we're going to learn about this. It's not just death. We need to think about the other chronic conditions that are going to come from coronavirus infection. And let's take a listen to FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn when he was asked by my colleague uh, Dana Bash about the president's false claim. I'm not going to get into who's right and who's wrong. What I'm going to say, Dana, is what I've said before, which is that it's a serious problem that we have. We've seen this surge in cases. We must do something to stem the tide. Does that damage the trustworthiness of the nation's public health officials when you hear that? Absolutely. Look, the biggest problem we've had all throughout this outbreak is that we have not had public health professionals at the forefront. We're hearing from an FDA commissioner. We also heard from the White House chief of, chief of staff who was commenting on the same thing and saying that, you know, this only affects people with comorbidities, not recognizing that the majority of American adults have some comorbidities like high blood pressure, diabetes. They don't know the nuance of this disease. They have never treated a patient with this disease. They should not be talking about the public health or really the health complications of this disease. They should be focusing on the policy and that policy should be guided by public health professionals only. All right, Dr. Craig Spencer, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And up next, President Trump stoking division and his press secretary unable to explain it as the president of the United States embraces the Confederate flag all to benefit himself. Then, eight years old, seven years old, 11 years old, eight years old. These are the ages of just some of the children shot and killed in a weekend of violence. In our politics lead, as the nation faces a reckoning on race, the White House press secretary could not defend the latest divisive rhetoric from President Trump today. Unable to say whether the president of the United States disavows the Confederate flag and refusing to explain the president's tweet today that NASCAR's decision to ban the Confederate flag has caused, quote, the lowest ratings ever. What is the president's position? Does he think NASCAR made a mistake by banning the Confederate flag? So he said he, I spoke to him this morning about this, and he said he was not making a judgment one way or the other. Let's drill down on, on the Confederate flag. Does he think it was a mistake for NASCAR to... The president said he wasn't making a judgment one way or the other. Why would the president not praise NASCAR for removing the Confederate flag, particularly given uh, the history of that flag, the symbol that it has for African-Americans? What we're seeing across the nation is this vast cancel culture where we're going to tear down our monuments. Uh, we're going to tear down Gandhi. We're going to tear down um, George Washington. We're going to tear down Lincoln. Um, it's really quite appalling what we've seen happen across the country. And um, the president wants no part in cancel culture. And soon after the press secretary's briefing, the president also complaining that the Washington Redskins and Cleveland Indians are considering changing their team names to, quote, be politically correct. Now, this is the latest episode of President Trump pitting Americans against one another, defending statues of controversial figures, refusing to consider renaming army bases named for Confederate leaders, calling Black Lives Matter a symbol of hate, and of course, having said there were good people on both sides of the violence in Charlottesville in 2017. All of this an apparent distraction tactic as the coronavirus pandemic is raging in the United States, with more than 130,000 people in this country dead from that virus. 
As CNN's Jeremy Diamond reports, the tweets today follow a series of inflammatory statements from the president during the weekend celebrating American independence. Today, President Trump ramping up his divisive and racially charged rhetoric. The president suggesting he disagrees with NASCAR's decision to ban the Confederate flag at its races and falsely accusing NASCAR's only black driver of orchestrating a hoax after a member of his team found a noose in his garage. Why is the president even suggesting that Mr. Wallace should apologize? Well, look, the FBI, as I noted, concluded uh, that this was not a hate crime, uh, and he believes it'd go a long way if um, Bubba came out and acknowledged that as well. But Wallace did, back on June 24th saying he was relieved after the FBI determined the noose had been in the garage since last year. This afternoon, Wallace tweeted, always deal with the hate being thrown at you with love, adding, even when it's hate from the president. The White House press secretary also trying to claim that Trump was not expressing support for the Confederate flag. I spoke to him this morning about this and he said he was not making a judgment one way or the other. South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, a loyal Trump supporter, backing NASCAR's decision. They're trying to grow the sport. The Confederate flag is not a good way to grow your business. And defending Wallace. Well, I don't think Bubba Wallace has anything to apologize for. Trump's tweet built on the inflammatory rhetoric he delivered in a pair of Independence Day speeches. In which he painted racial injustice protesters as fascists trying to end America as we know it. Angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders, deface our most sacred memorials, and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities. We will never allow an angry mob to tear down our statues, erase our history, indoctrinate our children, or trample on our freedoms. After trying to recast his fight to protect Confederate monuments as an attempt to protect and preserve our history, our heritage, and our great heroes. The president's race-based appeals unmasked by his own tweets, signaling a campaign strategy to stoke fear among white Americans, just like in 2016. And Pam, as you see the president and the White House's rhetoric on these issues of race uh, and on this issue of the Confederate flag in particular, we are now learning from a defense official who tells our colleague Barbara Starr that top military brass are reviewing a draft policy proposal that would ban all Confederate flags from military bases uh, across the armed services. Uh, that would put on hold uh, efforts by different branches of the military service currently underway to consider potential bans. But Pam, as you can see, based on the rhetoric from the White House press secretary and from the president himself, this could certainly set up a clash between the president and top military br brass over this issue of the Confederate flag. Pam. You're absolutely right about that. Thanks so much, Jeremy Diamond. And I want to bring in CNN political correspondent Abby Phillip, Washington Post reporter Tulo Oloranipa, and uh, Fox senior politics reporter Jane Koston. My apologies, Tulu. Um, and Tulu, I'm going to start with you because the White House says Trump doesn't have a stance one way or the other on the Confederate flag front. Why is it so hard for the president, for this White House, to come out against a flag that's a symbol of racism? Yeah, obviously, by saying the president doesn't have a stance, they are taking a stance. This is a president that has an opinion on everything from the Oscars to the weekend lineup at Fox News. He has an opinion on basically everything that you can think of, and he tweets it out. He's not shy about his opinions. The fact that they are trying to 
essentially play both sides by saying the president doesn't have a view, doesn't have an opinion. It's very clear that in 2020, if you don't have a view about the Confederate flag, that speaks volumes and it tells exactly where you stand. We've seen the president call the Black Lives Matter movement a symbol of hate. But when it comes to the Confederate flag, he has no view, no thoughts about what exactly it means. And obviously we see from his tweet where he said that it was a mistake essentially for NASCAR to ban the Confederate flag, that he does have a view. He does believe that NASCAR made the wrong decision by banning this flag and that he would be fine having the Confederate flag flying all over the country in 2020. It's very clear he has a view. The White House may have not wanted to sort of publicize that view, but in 2020, if you're saying you don't have a view about the Confederate flag, it's pr pretty clear where you stand. And yet he's made that view clear, not just recently, but historically. And what stuck out to me was the White House press secretary also saying this repeatedly. Take a listen. As happened with Jesse Smollett, as happened with the Covington Catholic boys, in an aggregate, those actions uh, made it seem like NASCAR men and women were racist individuals who were roving around and engaging in a hate crime. All right. So, Abby... Those incidents she mentioned, they're, they're all totally different. But, but let's talk about um, remarks taken in aggregate here. OK, you have the president's Confederate flag tweet today. Uh, he said he will veto any bill to change the name of military bases uh, named for Confederate generals. The president has said there are good people on both sides in the 2017 Charlottesville violence. He's attacked NFL players for kneeling during the national anthem. He called himself a nationalist. He said, quote, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And he shared a tweet, and then it was deleted, where a person said, white power. So when you look at that in aggregate, what does that tell you, Abby? Yeah, I mean, you could just take the president's statements and actions over the last week, and you would have an aggregate view of a president who's running uh, for re-election uh, on white grievance as, as a central unifying message for his campaign. Uh, this is not an isolated incident, and it's also not about, you know, um, false claims of, uh, of, of, not, of, of hate crimes that are not real, as the press secretary wanted uh, it to, to be about. What this really is is about uh, how the president leads. Does he unite the country or does he divide the country? Does he stand up for anti-racism or does he defend symbols of racism? And I think time and time again, the president has defended the symbols of racism, uh, threatening that he would veto a bill uh, that sought to remove Confederate names from U.S. military bases uh, because that has is a priority for him. Mm -hmm. He has rarely voiced uh, the concerns or the feelings of, uh, you know, millions of black Americans who do not view Confederate symbols as their history. And so that is the aggregate, as you as you say, Pam, that's the aggregate view, I think, of what the president's been doing over the last several weeks, but really over the last many, many years, dating all the way back to, as Jeremy said in his piece, back to 2016, when it, at that time it was uh, Mexicans being criminals and, and rapists and mm -hmm. banning Muslims. Today, uh, it's Americans being pitted against Americans in an effort to further divide the country, it seems. That's a, a very uh, important point there. And you make also another point, Abby, when he, he kept saying, and, and the White House press secretary kept saying, our history. But Jane, when you hear that, what do you think? Are they really talking about everyone's history here in America? I don't think so. I mean, the Confederacy was canceled in 1865 by the deaths of hundreds of thousands of American citizens who stood up to reunite this country and end the institution of slavery. 
But it's a, it's a fascinating rhetorical tactic because it's one that's reliant on not just racial grievance, but online racial grievance. If you're not on Twitter and you're not following the news super closely, what you're concerned about are small businesses shutting down because of coronavirus. What you're concerned about is the pandemic that continues to kill across the country. And you go online and you find out that the president is more focused about yelling about football teams than he is on what working class Americans, many of whom voted for him in 2016, believing that he would listen to them when others hadn't. And he's really worried about a NASCAR driver and a football team and you kind of the online, he's an extraordinarily online campaign that is supposed to reach out to people who aren't online. And so I think it's, it's a base attention tactic, but it shows no promise of either widening Trump's base, getting independent voters who don't find him appealing right now, or more importantly, speaking to what Americans are worried about. Okay. Well, Jane, we're going to work on your audio um, over the break and be sure to stick around because there's a lot more to discuss that, you know, President Trump, we're seeing he may be using racism to appeal to his base, but are some of his critics playing into his hands? We're going to discuss that right after this break. Stay with us. And welcome back. We are talking about the president's recent comments about the Confederate flag. Talu, how is this culture war he's stoking different than what he did in 2016? I know Abby touched on it a little bit, but it seems as though he's ratcheting up uh, the racist overtures and focusing more inward inside what's going on in the U.S., yeah, the president is, uh, as Abby said, pitting Americans against one another. And not only is he doing that, he, he's also being much more blatant about it uh, this time around. I think back in 2016, he would often just use code words like our, our heritage and, and focusing on things like, you know, the history that he wants to focus on. Now it's much more blatant when you're retweeting people who say white power and not condemning that kind of language, when you are speaking out directly in favor of the Confederacy, saying that NASCAR made the wrong decision by banning Confederate flags. It's clear that the president is leaning into this racial grievance politics and focusing on uh, trying to cast any attempts at racial justice as political correctness run amok or attempts to erase American history. So I think this time around, the president is being much more blatant about what he's doing. And uh, almost every day we have a new example of the president in engaging in these, uh, these politics of uh, racial division. And Abby, on that note, my reporting with my team, Sarah Westwood and Kevin Liptak, is that Republicans uh, fear that the president's failure to take a leading role on publicly wearing a mask and to encourage his supporters to follow suit that that could threaten the economic recovery that Trump is counting on to fuel his reelection. Do you think the president sees that potential fallout? Yeah, you know, this is one of those things where a couple of months ago, the president, I think, bought into the argument by many of his advisors that he really needed to focus on attacking the virus, getting that under control, reopening the country so he could once again run on the economy. But it does in some ways see that seem that by switching tactics to focus so uh, stringently on these cultural issues and these ra issues of race, that he himself has abandoned the idea that the economy is something that he'll be able to run on. Uh, he's gone back to calling it the China virus, blaming uh, China for uh, and, and implying the China purposefully unleash the virus onto the world in order to hurt the U.S. economy. So it seems the president himself has given up on the economy, and that's why we're seeing so many of these other issues bu bubbling to the surface. 
And, you know, you saw the press secretary, Jane, attacking reporters today at that podium at the end of the briefing for not asking about the rise in violence over the weekend. And we're going to talk about that today uh, in a little bit uh, later on in the show. But are Democrats making a mistake when you see how far some of them have gone in some cases with the monuments, for example, like in, in Thomas Jefferson? Is there a chance progressives are playing into the president's hand here? I mean, I think that in many ways, the fact that we're having a conversation about a monument to Thomas Jefferson and not about the forces that led to the deaths of Ahmed Arbery or Breonna Floyd or, or George Floyd, or I think that that really is the key focus for me. You know, the reason why all of this began is because a police officer killed George Floyd, kneeling on his neck for an extended period of time. The reason why we're having any of this conversation is because we wanted to talk about police brutality and police misconduct and agents of the state wielding their power, power we give them in a way that injures and kills people, white and black. I want to uh, attract people to the attention of the story of Daniel Shaver and other people who are other white people, Latinos, others who have been victims of police violence. And so I think that in many ways, the entire monument discussion is a bit of a distraction. We are trying to talk about the issues of racial injustice and police brutality, but it seems much easier to talk about statues instead. Hmm. Tablu, how do you see it? I think that's that's right right on point. I think the president does want this conversation to be about statues, even though it's a more and more isolated position, as we're seeing the Pentagon, we're seeing a, not, a large number of Republican officials say that they don't want to have anything to do with this conversation about the Confederacy, but the president thinks it's a good move for him. All right, Jane, Abby, Tallulah, thank you for this really important discussion. Thank you. And we have breaking news. Thousands of international students may soon be forced out of the country. That's next. Stay with us. And we are back with our health lead and top Texas officials warning hospitals could be overwhelmed in less than two weeks if the surge of coronavirus cases continues. The state reported a record high number of hospitalizations yesterday More than 8,000 patients are hospitalized with coronavirus right now as we speak. And joining me now is Dr. Mark Boom, the president and CEO of Houston Methodist Hospital. Dr. Boom, thank you for coming on. Let's get right to it. What are you seeing in your hospital right now? Just how bad is this surge of new cases? Bring us in. Well, we're seeing a a continued and accelerating uptick in the patients coming to our hospital. So today we're at right about 700 people in our hospitals. We have eight hospitals across the greater Houston area. Put that in perspective, we have probably about 2,400 beds or so. So, you know, well over one in four and actually now, you know, more like 30 percent or so of all of our beds are being used for COVID patients. Uh, On Memorial Day, we had 104 patients. So we are now almost seven times where we were uh, just a little over six or about six weeks ago at Memorial Day. Um, So it's it's stressing the system. It's certainly straining. Um, We are concerned about where this is headed. We need to get the curve flattened and, and, and really turned the other direction in Houston or really in a two to three week period, things get uh, very, very crazy around. What are the differences in the patients you're seeing now uh, with COVID and the patients you were seeing a few months ago? Excuse me. Um, yes, it, it's actually um, fascinating. We've we've uh, um, and, and encouraging a little bit as well. We're seeing a younger population um, that is uh, both worrisome because, of course, that's what's been spreading through the community. Mm-hmm. But it's also encouraging because they tend to get a little bit less 
sick. Now, let me be clear. They get sick at every age. And in fact, we had uh, a young individual in their 20s show up in one of our emergency rooms coding uh, and, and passing away just the other day, mm. which was very traumatic for everyone. So we see uh, all ages get incredibly sick. Um, we have seen mortality decrease overall. It's about half of what it was running in the first surge. Um, part of that is age. Um, a large part of that seems to be getting better and really all the learning that's happened over the last uh, four months or so of what we've been doing. That also means lo lower lengths of stay, which enables us to kind of manage this surge a little better and lower ICU utilization, which also has enabled us to be able to manage this a little better. But, but let me be clear, it is, it is a challenge. Our people are working incredibly hard. They're just wonderful, heroic people on the front lines doing this. And we're very concerned about where things go in the next two, three weeks. If we together as a society across greater Houston don't get this curve flattened, which is everyone doing their part. So then what do you think then? You're expressing this concern looking ahead over the next couple of weeks. Is it time for Houston and other cities that, that haven't done so that have reopened to lock back down, given the reality of the situation playing out right now? Well, we've had a lot of movement in the right direction in terms of behaviors. Um, it, it's obviously something incredibly hard to measure. Uh, but first one partial masking order, then another masking order this last Friday. Uh, the governor put that into place. He also limited large, uh, you know, limited down to small gatherings. Um, both our county judge and our mayor have been urging everybody to do their part as well. We saw a lot of better, I think, uh, behavior over the 4th of July than we saw over Memorial Day. Uh, all the hospitals together have been urging people to do that. We wrapped the paper. We put out ads and social media. Um, and so I'm hopeful that that can get us bent. Um, we're seeing a little leveling off in the testing data, still really high numbers of people, but it's not accelerating like it was before. That tends to lead hospitalizations by about a week to 10 days. So I'm crossing my fingers that we may see this start to level off in a week to 10 days, but that's far from certain. And people really can't let their guard down. We need them to actually bring their guard up even further here so that we can get over this curve. And like you said, no one is immune from this, and your staff witnessed someone in their 20s pass away from the coronavirus. So it just shows you how real of a threat that this continues to be. Dr. Mark Boom, thank you uh, for, for giving us a glimpse of the reality going on behind the scenes at these hospitals, and thank you for all the work that you and your staff do. Thank you. Well, it is second only to the U.S. in coronavirus cases, but this is what the streets of Brazil look like. We are live on the ground up next. Breaking news just in, thousands of foreign students in the United States will be forced to leave the country or risk deportation if their university switched to online-only classes. The Immigration and Customs Enforcement just making this announcement moments ago as universities nationwide are starting to make this decision whether to continue in-person learning amid coronavirus. Certainly puts many of these universities in a tough spot. Meantime, the U.S. by far leads the world in coronavirus cases. And number two right behind the U.S. is Brazil, with 1.6 million cases and more than 600 deaths reported just yesterday. Yet Brazil is reopening shops and restaurants, restarting soccer games at public stadiums. With the veto, Brazil's president weakened a mandatory face mask law, making exceptions for masks in stores, churches and schools. As CNN's Bill Weir reports, Brazil is in crisis with little sign of recovery. In the age of COVID-19, Presidents Trump and Bolsonaro are two of a kind. 
Both love Twitter and by all appearances, hate wearing masks. Both are openly at odds with their nation's top doctors. Trump is good. Bolsonaro is good. And rely instead on the support of fans as they dismiss the pandemic as a little flu and a lot of hype. So you don't believe COVID-19 exists at all? It's, it's an anxiety, it's a hope? It could exist, this pro-Bolsonaro YouTuber tells me, but if it exists, it is weak. He sounds just like his president, who when asked about his nation passing China in fatalities, said, so what? I mourn, but what do you want me to do? I can't work miracles. But the pot and pan protests that now ring out every time he goes on TV are just one sign of a nation at odds with itself. Testing is still hard to come by. And as they dig mass graves from Amazonia to Rio, some experts believe the official 1.6 million infections reported could be 12 to 16 times higher. And yet, the big cities are opening up, just as Bolsonaro uses his veto power to water down new laws to protect the public, ones that would make mask wearing mandatory in churches, schools, shops, and prisons. It's crazy, it's crazy. Uh, science is being ignored in this government as it has never been before. We Natalia Pasternak is a microbiologist who lobbies for more science in government that, policy and is among the many who are horrified when Bolsonaro fired his respected health minister for advancing quarantines. A loyal general with no healthcare experience is now running the nation's pandemic response. Are we going to be able to care for these people? I mean, will there be hospitals for everyone? Will there be ventilators for everyone? We never reach the situation that they reached in Italy where the doctor is forced to choose the person that gets the ventilator. I hope we never come to that, but I'm afraid we might. And at the same time, Pamela, as they brace for the worst here, thousands of Brazilians are the first volunteers for a new vaccine trial. Actually, two of them in the third stage, the most important stage. Uh, one is uh, out of the University of Oxford, another out of China. They will give those vaccines or placebos to frontline medical workers who've been exposed. So hopefully that may be, they may find a discovery of a, of a cure for all of this. But today as malls open for the first time in a long time, as people dine out together, uh, we'll see whether this opening was way too soon based on the politics of one man at the top. Pam? All right, we shall see. As you said, Bill Weir, thank you so much. And up next, a holiday marked by tragedy. A six-year-old little girl shot and killed just while she was playing, just playing outside. She's just one of several small children killed across America this weekend. In our national lead, take a look here. At least six innocent kids across the U.S. were shot and killed in senseless gun violence over this holiday weekend. Here are pictures of just four of them, all of these children under the age of 14. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio said his city saw too much violence this weekend with at least 60 victims, 44 different shootings. As CNN's Nick Valencia reports, this is coming as the nation sees an uptick in gun violence after scrutiny on racial bias in policing. Seven-year-old Natalia Wallace was playing with her cousins in the front yard of her Chicago-area home. In Hoover, Alabama, Royte DeMarco Giles Jr. had just finished second grade and was walking in the mall. Eight-year-old Sicoria Turner 
was out on a drive with her mother in Atlanta. These young faces are among the at least six children shot and killed in what was a violent 4th of July holiday weekend. Enough is enough. An emotional Atlanta mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, struggled as she begged anyone with information about Sequoia's killing to come forward. We're fighting the enemy within when we are shooting each other up on our streets in this city and you shot and killed a baby. And it wasn't one shooter, there were at least two shooters. An eight-year-old baby. In Chicago, Natalie Wallace's family described their soon-to-be second grader as sweet, shy, loving, and good at math. It's sad. You hear this on the news every day that a child getting killed, somebody getting every killed, day. but every you don't day. think about it until it's your own. Summer months in cities like Chicago tend to come with a rise in shootings, but it's never easy to accept, especially when the victims are so young and innocent. If our lives don't matter to ourselves, then nobody else going to take our lives. Exactly. In the nation's capital, the devastating shooting death of 11-year-old Devon McNeil. So I have words like I don't have words. The boy's grandfather founded the Guardian Angels in D.C., spending years fighting against gun violence, only to outlive his grandchild, who was struck by a bullet when he got out of the car to go into his aunt's house to get a phone charger. Being out here and fighting this for all these years, I never thought it would actually hit a home. The children killed over the weekend were as young as six and as old as 14. They already had dreams and aspirations of being in the music industry. Young lives with hopes and dreams of their own. Lives cut short on what was meant to be a weekend of celebration. I want to see the same anger and outrage. I want us to see it on behalf of Sequoia and all the other people and children who are getting shot in our streets. It's a lot of change that has to happen across this country. One child killed is enough to create outrage, but six killed in 72 hours? Some may call that a national wake-up call. And here in the state of Georgia, Governor Kemp has decided to do something about it just a short time ago, declaring a state of emergency to activate as many as 1,000 National Guard members to patrol the streets of the state. Pamela? All right. Thank you so much, Nick Valencia. I'm Pamela Brown, in for Jake Tapper. Follow me on Twitter at PamelaBrownCNN or tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.